The following podcast is taken from a live broadcast on Inspire FM. Good evening and welcome to the Ask Your Lawyer show. I am your host, Tyra Iqbal of Liberty Law Solicitors. And with me in the studio today is the legendary Leslie Manley of Church Court Chambers. Uh, For those of you that do not know, Leslie is a highly experienced barrister at Church Court Chambers and she specializes in criminal and civil law cases. Um, We also have joining us for the first time on the Ask Your Lawyer show, Amina Kareem. Amina (laughs) is a bar student and she also works as a junior editor of GC Legal Magazine, Welcome to the show, guys. It's great to be here. And thank you for joining tonight. (laughs) Thank you for having us. So um, in light of the recent A-level results on the 15th of August, we thought that it would be a really good idea to discuss careers, specifically legal Mm -hmm. careers, and um, the different routes into law for all of you that are interested. Um, And you're actually quite lucky today because we have uh, obviously a fully qualified barrister with years of experience. And we also have (laughs) Amina who's currently studying at the bar. So you have, you know, different ends of the spectrum and you get to get a good insight into what it's like for each of them. So um, that's not at all actually. In the second half of the show, we're going to be discussing an important topic about consent. So um, as defence lawyers, the issue of consent is something that we deal with time and time again. It is a difficult subject matter, but it, it is an important concept in law which affects everyone in society. But we'll have more of that in the second half of the show. So for now, um, <laughs> careers, let's just start with the basics, really. Uh, I'll start with you, Amina. Have you always wanted to pursue a legal career? I think it was always between history and law. They just ended up being subjects that I was quite good at. And then I kind of decided on law with the help of my family. They were like, it might be easier to get a job if you do a straight law degree. And I guess it kind of worked out. So Nice. Okay. And you, Leslie, have you always been interested in pursuing a legal career? Um, My first thought of a career, actually, was to be a primary school teacher. Really? Uh, Yes, because when I was at school my primary school I just enjoyed it so much everything from doing artwork to uh, story time the first teacher that really inspired me to read read does the lion the witch and the wardrobe Aww. and so the idea of going into a magical world so I really loved that and that was what I thought actually I would do when I was doing general studies a level Uh, we went to Preston Crown Court and saw a real live trial. Mm -hmm. And that was really the first time that I thought, oh, this is something that I might enjoy. And also something that I thought, actually, maybe I can do. Because when you see things on the television, it's very different from seeing a real live trial. So that was really my first uh, time of thinking I'd like to be in the law. In the law. Interesting. And what was your route into law? I'll start with you, Amina. Okay. Um, so you're just starting out um, sort of at the beginning yeah. of your career path. What has been your route so far? So I, we didn't have law as an option in school, mm-hmm. in high school, but I took law as an A-level and then I did a straight law degree. Then I did the combined master's and the BPTC, which is the Bar Professional Training course, in order to be a barrister. So yeah, I'm doing that right now. You say you're currently yeah. studying that. Cool. And you, Leslie? Um, I began 
by reading an English degree, English language and literature. And also when I'd left school, because I loved reading, I worked in the library because I thought that would let me read all day, but in fact <laughs> it didn't. I had to do things like shelf books and um, oh, no. <laughs> things like that. So I then, once I got my degree, I did the common professional exam in law where you do six core subjects. Then I did the bar course and then I did a year's training pupillage, which Amina will know and you know, but for those people who don't know, that's a year's practical training where you are supervised by a barrister for the first six months. You don't do any of your own cases. You follow the person to court. You do paperwork for them and help them, hopefully. Mm -hmm. But the main thing <laughs> is that you learn. And then in the next six months, you're still supervised, but you get to go to court yourself and do um, your own cases. So that was my route to law. Okay, um, so you mentioned having to do a course with the six core subjects. Is that known as a GDL now, the Graduate Diploma in Law? Is that slightly different? I, I, I'm, I'm really not sure. It might be the same yeah. thing. Yeah. It's for people, it's is it? Yeah. yeah. So it's for people who haven't, uh, Red law as, as a, yeah. yes, and so then you do so six six essential subjects that you've got to got to know. Mm -hmm. And the both well, you are a barrister, <laughs> and you want to be a barrister, right? So uh, both of you are interested in that aspect of law. What made you decide to become a barrister instead of a solicitor? Um, I think when I was younger, I was quite good at talking myself out of trouble. So <laughs> my mum always said that I would be a good barrister and I think that's what appealed to me most. Um, I really like the advocacy side, mm -hmm. um, being in front of, you know, a lot of people and just getting to talk and argue. Yeah, it really appealed to me. Well, very similar reasons. The, the only difference is that when I qualified, you couldn't do Crown Court trials unless you became a barrister. Oh. And I was really fascinated by criminal law and Crown Court trials. Now, of course, you can be a solicitor advocate and do Crown Court trials. Mm -hmm. So really, that was the reason I chose that route rather mm -hmm. than to be a solicitor. Right. Okay. And so for our listeners that don't actually know, what is the difference between a solicitor, a barrister and a solicitor advocate? Well, Nowadays, there's much more of a crossover in roles. Um, many countries have what's called a fused profession. Mm -hmm. So if, for instance, you are a barrister in Gibraltar, you will do this, the work of a solicitor as well here. There, there's differences because of different areas of law. But I, I would say, generally speaking, the solicitor... Um, generally has the initial contact with the client mm -hmm. and the barrister, whether it be in crime or um, copyright or whatever it is, generally has the more specialist area. That That's not always so because, as you've mentioned, there is solicitor advocates now mm -hmm. and you have people working from solicitor's offices who will also go to the mm -hmm. county court or crown court every day. So the roles are less 
clearly um, the delineation. Yeah, that's right. They overlap a lot more now than they used to. Um, again, when I started, you couldn't be a judge mm -hmm. unless you were a barrister, whereas that's not the case mm -hmm. now uh, either. Um, so, yes, things are overlap a lot more than they used to. Than they used to. Okay. And if somebody did want to become a solicitor advocate, are you aware of what other course they would need to do in order to qualify as a solicitor advocate? Um, I think you need to complete some sort of advocacy training and then there's a, a few more additional core exams. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So. Okay, cool. Um, so, Leslie, you're also an approved pupil supervisor and an advocacy trainer at Middle Temple, um, and you have taught for over 15 years. What exactly do you teach and what does this entail? Well, I think the first thing to say is that it was a great opportunity for me to be able to teach with the inn because um, the porter once said as I was going in late at night, he said, well, this is your chance to give back a little bit of what you were given. So it did seem strange really that having gone there as a very young woman in my 20s and now I'm actually teaching there. Mm -hmm. But the what it entails is that you yourself are, are trained, that you're not just allowed to go in and involve yourself with the students and tell them what you think of their advocacy. It used to be thought that you couldn't teach advocacy, that people had to go to court to pick it up and then learn by experience and mm -hmm. so forth. People know now that that's not the case and that you can be taught advocacy and people can make very real and dramatic improvements. What, what happened with me is that I got taught by many times Queen's Council how to teach and it's a, a particular method called the Hample method. Ooh, um, what is the Hample method? Well, well, I'm going to say this all incorrectly now. Um, <laughs> you, you, you identify something that the person has maybe not got quite right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that could be something serious or something less serious. Like a lot of people, they use what's called fillers. So if they get nervous, they they fill in by saying um ah. Uh, but <laughs> that's that's a very common thing. And so you then replay the situation for them with yourself with them not doing that, and then get them to do it. And it, in the very that's just a very basic example mm -hmm. but the exercises that generally all advocacy exercises bail applications examinations in chief cross-examination speeches yeah they are written by uh, bernard richmond who's queen's council and so all groups have the same material and so what happens is you go in after court if you're available and if they need you, you're assigned a group, but you very rarely get the same group twice. They they rotate okay. so that the idea is that they get the benefit of different people. And also we get monitored. So if I'm teaching, someone will come in, keep an eye on me and make sure that I'm doing the best I can for the for those uh, people. So that's what that's what 
the teaching involves yes oh, that's interesting and amina um as a bar student have you had any advocacy training yet or... yes so i think we had four core modules to do with advocacy examination in chief uh, cross-examination and then we had civil uh, submissions as well sorry mm -hmm. that's three <laughs> <laughs> um and then within that we had opening and closing speeches but we actually used the technique that you were talking about so at uni they used to record us mm -hmm. so um prior to that they would give us case papers and um, a task <laughs> so um we had to cross-examine a defendant about whether he committed um an attack or not or something like mm -hmm. that um and then you would they would kind of outline what questions you were allowed to use and um, we would replay it back and they would outline what we did wrong or what we could improve on um and then we found ourselves mm -hmm bettering ourselves like every week yeah. so it did work yeah that's really good and what would you say um studying the course and obviously you've studied the course Leslie what would you say has been the most difficult aspect for you personally or the most challenging aspect um into becoming a barrister or studying the BPTC well I think for me uh, there were a number of issues the first one really was what everybody unless you're really lucky uh, struggles with is the financial yeah. aspect yeah. it's really uh, a challenge when I ca came to study I was really fortunate because Lancashire County Council gave me a grant wow. to do the bar course which would not happen nowadays but otherwise I wouldn't have been able to do that but I did have to come to London mm. because it was the only yeah. bar school and of course when I'd been up north at university you can live reasonably well on you know your holiday jobs evening yeah. jobs and your grant to come to London was a really a, a financial challenge for me I was very lucky because um, another person who was uh, coming down, in fact, from Newcastle, she got a housing association mm -hmm. place uh, that we shared accommodation and it was not the commercial rent. So we were so fortunate. Otherwise, that would have been a very, very real obstacle. obstacle yeah. yeah. Are you aware of if there are there is any funding in place now for people that are interested in studying the bar course but don't necessarily have the financial means? There are a few scholarships yes. aren't there offered by INS and uh, the thing is when you're applying for student finance when mm. it comes to postgrad courses which aren't masters you won't get funding for it okay. so that's why a lot of bar schools now they offer kind of integrated masters where you get I think it's 10 grand but uh, most London bar courses are about 20 grand so you have yeah. to find that 10 grand from somewhere, the remaining 10 grand, which is quite difficult. Well, I, my son is currently doing a combined LPC and Masters, and I think that's how he managed to get the the loan that he's got. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think I'm the other part of his loan. You know, because I'm really aware that, you know, it was a challenge for me but for, for um people coming through now mm -hmm. it really is is very difficult yeah. you know um the 
one other thing that's changed is that when I was uh, training, you were limited as to what you could work as. Mm -hmm. You couldn't just think, well, I'll get an evening job or Saturday job or whatever. It had to be approved. Whereas now I think that those days are gone and I'm, I'm sure if you wanted to work in a shop on a Saturday or something like that, you'd be allowed to. But it was very much more rigid uh, back then. So there were, there were good things like getting the grant, but there were much more rigid structures around everything. So also, I think the ratio to do with scholarships and people applying for bar courses, they're so low in, you know, <clears throat> the amount of people that apply and how many are given out every year. Yes, I mean, I was on Twitter recently and I saw that Middle Temple are doing their best yeah. to give scholarships out and particularly to try to assist with social mobility mm -hmm. because one cannot deny that the economics is is, is an obstacle yeah. in in you know getting people from a, a diverse backgrounds yeah. to to get the qualified properly yes so speaking on <coughs> um, sorry that's okay speaking on diversity how diverse would you say you know members of the bar are now compared to how they used to be have you seen a change or would you say that not much change has actually been made and it's still very much the same? I think that there are a lot of progress has been made. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A lot of progress has been made. For example, when I came to London from the north, people were would comment on my accent <laughs> and say I couldn't really? possibly be a barrister oh, because of the way I spoke mm -hmm. and hadn't I better quickly go off to Manchester <laughs> or something like that. Um, being a woman was very difficult. Um, <clears throat> I was in a chambers that actually had three women, which was unusual, mm. and there was a lot of concern yeah. when I applied that I would be for you know it it really was um quite awful in in a way in that sense that that was a factor in the decision making I hope that that's not the case now yeah I mean, it, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry. I think in in life generally, you know, to hold down, I call it, or keep out of occupations, be people because of their gender or mm -hmm. their ethnic backgrounds yeah. or a anything like that, it, you're just wasting human talent, yeah. actually. Um, this is a bit off... The, script but I call it script <laughs> not that we have a script but <clears throat> I went to the Institute of Computer Science in the States mm -hmm. about two years ago and I, I couldn't believe it as I walked through the door the first thing you see is the British flag and the great big portrait of Countess Ada Lovelace <laughs> daughter of Lord Byron who was one of the first uh, pioneers in quite yeah. as you know yeah. and I going around the museum so many data analysts had been women and you just think over the years how much talent do we use yeah. if we don't um 
involve include people and i do see a big difference if you go to court now you see a very big difference and there's more to be done but yes yeah, I, I do yeah. see a big difference yeah um amina what are your thoughts on it as a young female um you're from the BAME background as well how do you find um diversity in the sense that in your in say your yeah. peers that are also studying um i'd say there is a kind of unconscious bias that does exist yeah um where people it's just the way that they've been raised that they just can't help to be a bit prejudiced Mm-hmm. That does exist, definitely. Um, a thing that I found when I was when I was studying is that the majority of students they're kind of just white, middle class. You still class. find that now, I still even find today. That, yeah. right. Middle class, upper class um, men um, who are from Oxbridge. I found that even when I was studying in London, um, and the majority of other students were kind of international, wealthy students. Um, I think it was just me and another girl from Newton who were, I was I was the only kind of ethnic girl in my class okay. from in a few classes that I had so it is a, an existing issue but I guess it's a lot better than it was you know and Leslie do you think uh, being a female does that have much of an effect on the cases that you deal with do you find that um, your gender has played a part in maybe how people perceive you as a barrister or the kind of work that you get given? I, I think it, that's difficult often to assess mm-hmm, yeah. because I have had many cases that one would say uh, might traditionally go to men, mm-hmm. um, black males, armed robberies, that, right. that sort of thing. Um, I don't know to what degree solicitor selection is based on on gender. I think nowadays clerks are very helpful, very advanced. I also have found recently solicitors very supportive. There was one lady... Um, I was the only woman on a case and the client questioned why he was the one, you know, why do I have to have a woman? And and she was excellent. She didn't just say, oh, yes, well, of course, I'll give you a man. She just said, don't you think you're being rather silly? And he said, "Mm, maybe, yeah, okay. But I think sometimes this unconscious bias that Amina has mentioned is there often in what I call the lay client's mind mm. that that they, if they're in a big drugs case, for example, and everyone else has got a male barrister, that they're, well, why have I got a woman? Yeah. Um, and they're not always able to realise that you're there because of your intellect or, you know, <laughs> not that your skill, if you, you hope that you have, you know. So... Um, I I personally don't feel I've been pushed or channeled into work to do with children or okay. however that's now when I was starting in the 80s mm-hmm. that's all I got family work childcare oh. you know okay so I think times have changed um 
and I suppose you know I've changed I've you know as you go through the years you get different skill sets or you hope you improve on your skill sets mm-hmm. so were there a lot of men working in family in the 80s or was it just predominantly women well certainly it was a lot of women yeah. I did tend to find a lot of male barristers particularly when it was financial ancillary relief financial yeah when it was the child work to do with children um i certainly felt that it was more female dominated if you call it um which can, can be quite unfair in men at times there are many yeah. men who are excellent at cross-examining children or dealing with children so I, I that's why I think uh, people you know we need to care about everybody and we need to strive to to make the to try to eliminate these biases that you yeah, have spoken of and um, so we have about 50 seconds or so before <laughs> oh. we're cutting off to the break and um, just quickly before the break starts do you have any advice for those people that are currently pursuing a legal career or wish to become a barrister or a solicitor um in the few seconds that we have well i I think um work experience building a network just kind of it's all about who you know um well i agree with this work experience because face-to-face work in shops anything that you're doing that Mm -hmm. you can communicate and get on with people also if you have a language use that because that's really valuable so okay, sorry <laughs> that's, that's good advice okay guys so uh we're just going to take a quick break now and join us again soon for the second half of the show assalamu alaikum this is atif nawaz listen to inspire fm shows in your time by heading over to inspirefm.org or listen on apple podcasts or spotify Welcome back to the Ask Your Lawyer show. I am Tara Iqbal of Liberty Law Solicitors hosting this evening and with me in the studio today we have Leslie Manley who's a church court barrister and we also we've also got Amina Karim who is a bar student and a junior editor of GC Legal Magazine. Um, for those of you just joining before the break we were discussing legal careers and routes into law basically and we also mentioned that in this half of the show we will be discussing an important topic Uh, we're going to now be speaking about consent Um, as defense lawyers the issue of consent is something that we deal with time and time again it is a difficult subject matter but it is an important concept in law which affects everyone in society and we want to educate people about what consent actually is and so we will be having a frank discussion about consent now um Amina you have actually written two dissertations about <laughs> consent and marriage and the like and Leslie uh, you have over 25 years worth of experience uh, prosecuting and defending serious um offenses uh, and dealing with cases obviously concerning consent so um just to kind of kick off what is the legal definition of consent well, the, it was never actually defined until 2003. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is now, it, it was given its general meaning before that. But now, 
Section uh, 74 of the Sexual Offences Act 2003 does give a definition of consent. And it says that for the purposes of this act, a person consents if he, she agrees by choice and has the freedom and capacity to make that choice. So that's the statutory definition of consent. Okay, that's quite interesting. So um, by freedom and capacity, what exactly do you mean? Well, you've got to have the mental ability Mm -hmm. to consent. You have not to be in a situation of being bullied, coerced, Mm -hmm. uh, and you have to be over the age of 16. Okay. And there are special circumstances where if if you... That's what what I'd call for... I don't know if Amina would agree, the the legal age of consent. Mm -hmm. However... There are people, uh, doctors, teachers, you are not allowed to, what they call, um, you abuse your trust. Yeah, yeah. the trust. Uh, the, if the person is 16 or 17, you should not be having sexual activity with them. But yes, the freedom and capacity to, con- to consent. So it's got to be proper mm-hmm. consent. Yeah. Okay, so um, you mentioned that the legal age of consent in the United Kingdom is 16 years old. Mm -hmm. Um, Are you aware of what the youngest age of consent is? Where? Which country? Nigeria? I I think, yes, I think think you two told me that. (laughs) So in Nigeria, um, the legal age of consent is actually 11 years old. And what are your opinions on the legal age of consent in the UK so do you think that it should be higher or do you think that it should be lower this is just your opinion I don't think I would change it um I think there are some arguments to lower it to 15 just because children are reaching puberty earlier and that um they're just engaging in kind of intimate acts a bit earlier than 16 but Mm -hmm. I think 16 is a pretty decent kind of age I would agree with Amina. Again, it's only my personal opinion, but I think given that it's not just about puberty, it's about yeah. your maturity, exactly. isn't yeah. it? And so, yes, I agree with Amina, but my my opinion is it's, it's Parliament. I've got it, done it correctly. <laughs> They'd be pleased to know. <laughs> In my view. (laughs) We approve. (laughs) We approve. (laughs) So um, can someone ever consent on your behalf? No. No? No. Never? No. Okay. (laughs) Um, Is silence ever considered consent? I, I... No. Um, you just had a bit of silence there. <laughs> the fact someone is silent cannot of itself be interpreted as giving consent, consent in this context. Okay. Uh, we, we, in the past, there were various legal maxims, you know, keeping quiet meant you consented and yeah. so forth. But, but that's not in this context. Um, the fact that somebody doesn't say no loudly or just keeps quiet mm-hmm. doesn't mean, doesn't mean yes. 
exactly. Yes, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Right. Okay. So um, I know you said in the past silence was sort of a form of acceptance. Um, are you aware of when this actually changed? Oh, sorry. I don't think it's ever been a form, the, of, a form okay. of consent, consent. In, in this. I was right, thinking, okay. actually, yeah. just to digress, <laughs> about um, <laughs> the trial of Sir Thomas More where he wouldn't speak. Ah, and, so what can and, you tell us about that trial? Because obviously not all of our listeners would be aware of what happened or the facts of that case. Well... So he didn't speak... What, it, it, well, he... Well, this is where Amina's history will be <laughs> very useful. <laughs> um, it was during the situation with Henry VIII when he was getting a, a divorce uh-huh. uh, or trying to get a divorce... Uh, from Catherine of Aragon and marry um, Anne Boleyn. And everyone was required to swear an oath. And my my memory, so <laughs> listeners, forgive me, <laughs> uh, is that Sir Thomas More would not, but he wouldn't say anything no. and had the Latin maxim, uh, you know, silence means consent. So it's in that context, never in this uh, never context. In, so I wouldn't like to confuse anybody. Intimacy, yeah. Yeah, or get silence anybody writing in outraged or whatever. <laughs> it, no, no. It's, it's the fact of somebody not protesting or anything is never in this context okay. meant consent. Yeah. So in, going off on that then, mm-hmm. um, how do you know whether consent was actually given? Um, I think there's a couple of types of different consent. Mm-hmm. There's explicit and is it implied? Um, yeah. Explicit is obviously when you say yes yeah. or no. Mm-hmm. And then implied, it depends on the context kind of things that are done or that might suggest something. Yeah, okay. Um, and what does it mean by having reasonable, reasonable belief that there is consent, Leslie? What can you tell me about reasonable belief? Well, reasonable belief goes beyond just a genuine belief. It it has to be uh, reasonable in all the circumstances. So you might think a certain thing. You might Mm -hmm. genuinely think it, but it might not be reasonable. All members of the public looking at that set of facts might think, Yes, well, you genuinely believe that, but actually that's a very silly thing mm-hmm. for you to have believed because it's just not yeah. r- rational, not reasonable in all the circumstances. Yeah. Sometimes that's that will be what a jury trial will be about. Okay. Um, the, the jury, as 12 citizens, will say, we'll make that... Was that reasonable? Yes. Does that yeah. go to the reasonable kind of man test? Is it to do with that like what would a normal person on the street would they um think that's reasonable um just because you think something's reasonable doesn't mean that kind of someone that it is yeah 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 Okay. okay um can you consent to anything whilst being intoxicated well, you can, in the same way you can commit a crime when you're intoxicated mm-hmm. and you can be found guilty because a drunken intent still is still intent. an intent. Similarly, if you're intoxicated, you can consent. Mm-hmm. However, 
the degree to which you're intoxicated may mean you're you're not consenting or you, and you don't have the freedom and capacity to consent and this is why these cases are so difficult in court because they're obvious situations when somebody can't stand up mm-hmm. you know th- th- there's no way yeah. they don't recognize who they're with there is no way that they whatever they say would have got the capacity and freedom to genuinely consent, consent. equally you might have someone who's had one glass of wine and who's actually still in a position, or maybe more than one glass, it depends on the person, <laughs> but still on the inner condition to make an informed choice and decision. Okay, um, and this might sound a bit absurd, but can you consent whilst asleep? No. <laughs> no. No, you, you can't. And it's actually not... Um, uh, an observed question actually because there have been cases um, considered in Canada in particular and in Scotland mm-hmm. Mina probably knows more than I do because <laughs> she's done her papers on them and this these whole questions without going into details of the cases yeah. but I have you know can you consent in advance yeah. you know yeah. Yeah. and the answer really is no um, no. You know, you're, you you that that's yeah the, the Canadian Scottish authorities. Yeah. I I have looked. I haven't found one here, yeah. but maybe there is one. I don't um, think there is. Yeah. Um, so yeah. you cannot consent whilst asleep. Um, Leslie, you have special expertise in representing defendants with mental illness, mental impairment, and autism. Does having a mental disorder or a low mental age affect your ability to consent? Well, again, it can do, and Parliament's recognised that. And mm-hmm. I think it is Section 30 onwards of the Sexual Offences Act mm-hmm. 2003, the same piece of legislation. I, I think it's um, Section 30 onwards that do, that gives people... Uh, specific protection because obviously some people are very vulnerable Mm -hmm. and I think the whole aim of the law in this area is that um, respect really respect for yourself respect for other people and protection for those who are vulnerable Vulnerable. so uh, yes how, um, sorry. <laughs> no, I'm so, sorry. How might a person with a mental disorder or a low mental age meet the threshold of legal consent or for legal consent? Uh, well, I don't really know that I can I can answer that really. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, I think each case would be case specific yeah. and person specific. Yes, that's what. Yeah, I can't think. Off the top of my head, okay. for an example, sorry. And <laughs> then no, so. that's fine. Um, what happens if you consent to engaging in an activity, but then you later change your mind? During or after? So, let's say during. Then you've revoked your consent, haven't you? You don't consent. So you initially say, yes, I want to be involved yeah. in this, and then midway through you change your mind, um, so that your consent is no longer valid, Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, What happens then if you consent to engaging in an activity, 
but you don't change your mind during the activity, rather you change your mind later. Does that revoke your consent and does your consent become invalid or what What does that mean then if you later think, oh, do you know what? I don't think I, I wanted to do that. <laughs> if I, it, what, what matters is what was happening at the time. At the time. If you were consenting at the time, you were consenting at the time. Yeah. People being human beings do things they regret. Mm. I think that's what it is. And it's, that's... it's not just that your consent is invalid anymore. It's more sort of just regret. Yeah. So your consent is still valid in the circumstances of when you change your mind after yeah. the activity yeah. or whatever takes place. I mean, it doesn't stop people feeling upset yeah. and distressed, mm-hmm. but it is not the same as not having given consent in the first place. Yeah, yeah definitely mm-hmm. not. Um what happens if you consent to something else but the person misunderstood you and they did something that you did not consent to? What do you think? I think, <laughs> I think that's very complicated. Um, so you, you kind of agree to something and then the person, there was a miscommunication or something and that person reasonably believed that you were consenting but it wasn't quite what you thought or... It was something slightly Did different. Did you make it known to the person that it wasn't what you expected it to be? Is that what would have an effect then if you make it known at the time Cause that this isn't I guess, what I actually yeah, consented to? Wouldn't that be a revocal consent? Yes, yeah. I think so. Yeah, yeah and yeah. if you don't make it known at the time, then... Like we're in that situation again where it's happened after. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, then it's more just sort of a regret. Okay. <laughs> um, at court, must the prosecution prove that consent was not given or is it a matter for the defence to prove that consent was given? So who does a burden of proof lie with? Well, in a criminal trial yeah. of this mm-hmm. sort, the burden of proof is always on the prosecution to prove every element of the offence. Mm-hmm. The burden does... And the standard is to make a jury satisfied so that you are sure... Yeah. The, the burden does not shift to the defendant to the in this sort of case. Yeah. No. Okay. Um, so, in terms of marriage, it was only until 1990 where consent was deemed to be automatically given within a marriage. What changed this? Um, I think it was the case of R&R. Um, yeah. It was a woman who complained about her husband's advances, mm-hmm. um, but they were married. Mm-hmm. So prior to this, the law was that because you're married, consent is automatically given right. because essentially the law recognised that a wife was the husband's property. Mm-hmm. So it was a property kind of consent. Um, after 1990, that was revoked um, being that just because a prior relationship existed doesn't mean that consent was automatic. I think that's the main kind of gist of it. Yeah. So in terms of consent in marriages now, what are your views on this? I think it happened quite late on um, nineteen ninety. You think that the law should have changed earlier? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's quite archaic if you think about it. Nineteen ninety is, you know, quite recent. Yeah. Yeah. I was just looking at. Um, <laughs> the history 1736 yeah 
Matthew Hale, former Lord, former Chief Justice, um, he said the hu- husband, it was always gender specific then, mm-hmm. cannot be guilty on account of the matrimonial consent which she has given and which she cannot retract. Yep. And, um, yeah, as I mean, I said, you know, it was really property crime and I think... I think most people would actually be surprised that it was only towards the end of the last mm, century yeah. that um, th- th- these case- cases, the law evolved in that way. Yeah. And again, I think it's, is it the 2003 Act that, that actually yeah. specify, lays, yeah. specifies it now? You know, so... Um, Why do you think it took so long? I just think <clears throat> that um, so many things, society in the last century and went through such a shift yeah. and mm-hmm. it is now we are in unprecedented times with, for instance, digital case systems, yeah. uh, technology advancing beyond what everybody thought. And I think... You know, just in my own lifetime, my career as a vice at school, such as one got them, was always, well, you will need some sort of job that fits around your children. Mm -hmm. Um, You couldn't do certain financial things without a male say-so. And... There was this expectation of of a way of life and that was very entrenched, you know. Um, Having children when you weren't married, you know, uh, was considered very shocking. Divorce was considered very shocking. But I also think that... um, I don't think people realised the the, the the fact this all stemmed for, as, for, as a property crime yeah. in the first place. Um, so a lot has changed since then. A lot's changed. For the yes. better. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. There's um, a lot still to be done, though. Yeah, there are a lot of problems still in our society, one of them being, actually, um, society tends to victim blame. And usually this happens to women, um, in the context of when women get, you know, sexually assaulted or raped, uh, a lot of the time, or too often, a victim is asked insulting questions like, what were you wearing at the time of the offence? Um, does the way a person dress ever imply a willingness to do something or consent? Never. No. Let's just, let's just clear that up right now. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. So a person's outfit... No. <laughs> It's just ridiculous, right? (laughs) Yeah, so the way a person dressed does never imply consent or willingness or agreement to do something. Um, Leslie, what can you tell me about what free consent means in law? What, sorry? Free consent? Oh, well, it means, uh, yes, that that you have the freedom and capacity to, to consent, so you need to be old enough to know what you're doing. Yeah. You need to be... 
um, mentally able to make that choice. Yeah. yeah, you need to to be free, not bullied, not bossed about, not intimidated. Yeah. yeah. So is so, this where the idea of pressure comes in? If yeah, you're pressured to do something, to, yes. then I guess you don't have free consent. Yes. Well, also. Um, the silence thing Mm -hmm. but some people can't talk because they're too frightened of somebody you know they're too intimidated so um okay um there is an assumption that the authorities consider men the suspects and women the victims um leslie since you've dealt with many sexual offenses cases what are your thoughts on this i i don't think that the investigating authorities do necessarily think that okay. i i know that's um just a, a generic sort of yes, assumption yeah. assumption but i have dealt with cases where the offenders are women oh. and i don't want to go into detail because yeah, i don't want to <laughs> but that they've been women um yep. and So, but in the cases I've acted in, I have found them to have been investigated properly when a complaint's been Mm -hmm. made, even if the perpetrator's alleged to be a woman. Mm -hmm. I haven't ever heard of anyone saying, well, you know, that can't be right because she wouldn't do that. Um, And so that's not been my experience. That is all I can say, that I, I found things to be investigated properly i guess with those sorts of crimes they're under reported anyway so you can never kind of get a clear indication indication. yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. understandable okay so um what are some examples of prison sentences that you can receive if you do something without obtaining prior consent well in in advising a client what is going Mm -hmm. to happen to them one no longer just has to rely on old case law and authorities. There's the guidelines from the Sentencing Guidelines Council, mm-hmm. and there you can look at them online, <laughs> and it will nice bit of homework. A nice bit of homework. <laughs> again, I don't want to um, embarrass it anybody varies, yeah, listening no, by going through. Uh, different types of offences but it sets out very clearly what the offence is Mm -hmm. what your culpability is and that sort of thing and that will tell you the sentence in bracket that you would expect if if you um broke the law in this way yeah and amina um oh actually (laughs) i think we're i think we're coming close to the end of the show so yeah it's coming near to the end of our time here that was really fast um i want to say a massive thank you again to both leslie and amina for joining me on the show tonight um for those of you that want to get a hold of leslie you can contact her via church court chambers um Mm -hmm. or through our offices alternatively um I am Tarek Bell of Liberty Law Solicitors. I have been your host this evening. Until next time, guys, take care and good night. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Why not tune in to our live stream at inspirefm.org and follow and subscribe to our social media platforms at inspirefmluton.com.